So grab your Bibles, turn Leviticus 16. Uh, we'll start in verse 5, go down to verse 22. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats, set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord and make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself for his house. He shall kill the bull as he sent offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord to a handful of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so he does not die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. In front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. This he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement of the holy place till he comes out, has made atonement for himself, for his house, for all the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. Shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar all around. Shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. When he has made an end of atonement, of toning for the holy place and the tent of meeting the altar, he shall present the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. He shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Good Lord, prayer. Our Father, we ask as always to open our heart, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet. We would go in obedience to Christ. Would you be so kind as to help us in that endeavor? Lord, as we... Uh, discuss these two goats, one propitiatory, the other ex- expiatory. May we see the beauty of Christ and our need for both forgiveness and cleansing. May I decrease so you can increase. In your son we pray. Amen. See you. I don't know what kind of stove we have because those sort of conversations just don't interest me, but we have a stove, right? And it gets stained really easily. Okay, I grew up with the stove that we're at. The part you cook on pops up off the stove. I don't know. It's a little iron thing. I don't know. But this doesn't do that. It just cooks right on the stove. So if you know what that is, good for you. Again, I'm not interested in any of these. I hope to never buy a stove in my life is what I'm trying to tell you. The point is, is that this stove stains really easily, uh, especially if you do like I do and you put it, if you're, you're, you're boiling water, you know, for your mac and cheese and you put it on high and you walk away, that water's going to boil over. Well, that water stains really bad onto to that stove. Not to mention uh, the, the uh, pasta sauce blurts everywhere, right? And it just may, makes a mess on the stove. And I am just, 
uh, redneck of this stuff. I don't really know how any of this stuff works. So I do what any self-respecting man would do. I grab a rag, the nearest rag I can find, whether or not it's the right rag to use, according to my wife. And I grab it out of the drawer. I stick it under the sink, pour water on it, and then I try to wipe it off the stove. It gets about half of it. The surfacey stuff it, it gets, but the deep stains, it, it, you, you can't even notice that you've tried to clean the thing. And so when I'm out there just, just wearing my elbow out and throwing my shoulder out trying to clean this stuff, my wife will come in and say, don't you know you need a cleanser for that? And I'll say, I know I need a cleanser for it, but I don't know what that means. Right? We have all this stuff at the house. I don't know what to use because chances are whatever it is I think we're supposed to use, she will correct me and say, we have specific stuff for this. And I don't know what that specific stuff is. So I go back and re-rinse the rag and start all over again. Now, I know she is right, but part of me doesn't care, right? I, I just, I just, I, I don't know what to use. It's beyond my expertise. And so, and so eventually she will have to come in behind me and finish the rest of rest of of the job because it requires a cleanser the stains are too deep for mere water the same is true when it comes to our soul oftentimes when when we we feel the effects of sin as either the guilty party or the one that was that has been wronged we we often think there is a simple solution to the problem And here the gospel comes and the Bible comes and reminds us constantly what you need is to be cleansed. And too often, like I am with that stove, we are hesitant to do precisely that. What you have here in Leviticus 16 is a discussion of the stain itself, right? And it is all about the stain of Israel. We talked a little bit about the book of Leviticus this morning. It's got all the clean and unclean and what is, what is dirty and filthy and all, all that sort of stuff. And, and we can almost say the climatic part of Leviticus is, is found right here in Leviticus 16 with the, the Day of Atonement. But as we said this morning, the Bible frequently describes the soul-staining effect of sin. And those words include, among others, again, we talked about this this morning, filthy, uh, uncleanness, defilement, shame, dirtiness, iniquity. We could think of, of several other names. And, and the way this, this, this sense of uncleanness, this sense of defilement shows up is, is both to those who are guilty of sin and those who have been sinned against. And those two categories we don't think about very much to our detriment. When we think of sin, we only think about the sinner. And we rarely think about the victim of our sins. Actually, let's start with the victim of our sins, those, those whom we sin against. Consider, if you will, uh, the rape victim. Or if, if someone was taken advantage financially, if there is family betrayal or adultery like we saw this morning with David and Bathsheba, hurtful words that are said to us or to others that wound us deeply. Uh, what, what, if, what if we are forced to do things that violate our conscience at work, at home, in a relationship, or whatever it might be? These, these sort of to be sinned against leaves a stain on our soul to the point that it starts to shape who it is that that. We, we are. And, 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 and we may express it in different ways, but what we feel is unclean. What we feel is defiled and dirty. The same is true whenever we commit a sin. There are countless examples of criminals and other sinners who, who they express that they've, 
They've crossed a line. There is no forgiveness for them. And that weighs heavily on their heart and mind. Or, or, or the man whose alcoholism or, or womanizing has ruined his marriage and has distanced his children from him. And they won't have anything to do with him anymore. And, and when, when he comes and he shares his story with you, what it is that you're hearing from him, the sinner, is the defilement of sin upon his soul. Or consider the identity language we hear all the time. I am an alcoholic. I am uh, a rapist. I am a blank. Whatever that blank might be. We, we identify ourselves with a sin that we have committed or has been committed against us to the point that it becomes who we are. That is the language of a stain. The Bible uses this language all the time. And let me just give you a few examples um, in the Bible, uh, Genesis 34, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Notice the language there. Now, what did he do? He, he slept with, with his daughter. That is a, a common practice, uh, unfortunately, in Genesis. That is a, or not common practice, as a pattern we see in, in Genesis, right? Remember, Lot's daughters is, is, a, is a good example of that. Judah will do something with his daughter-in-law. Very similar here we see Jacob defiling his daughter Dinah. Uh, in Isaiah 64, for all of us have become like one who was unclean, and our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. If we had time, we could explore that verse in more detail, and you can see exactly what he means by filthy garments. But notice there the language of filthiness and unclean are right there. We are like filthy garments. We are all unclean. Jeremiah chapter 2, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. Sounds like that stove, doesn't it? You can wash, you can wash, you can wash, you can wash, but it isn't enough. Psalm 106, 39, then they became unclean in their practices and they played the harlot in their Deeds. Proverbs 30, 11 and 12, there is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. In his own eyes, he is clean, but he is truly filthy. What about what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7? He says, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles him. Not, not what you put in, food or whatever it might be, it's what comes out of him. That reflects his defilements. I think we know this intuitively, don't we? I've mentioned rape several times for, for, for good reason. Because, because we live in a society, we'll see here in a minute, that, that bifurcates uh, love and intimacy. And, 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 and in our Gnostic way, we, we think that we are just, we're souls trapped within a body. And so uh, how we use our bodies, oftentimes we don't consider the consequences. We are embodied beings. And so, so when you hear someone say, well, it's, it's just intimacy, it's just relationships, well, tell that to the person who's been assaulted sexually. Their wound runs deeper than a mere physical act. It's spiritual. Or consider uh, why many couples, uh, this is a common practice, whether they know it or not, that if, if they're trying to save their marriage after one partner has committed adultery, even both partners have committed adultery, maybe out of revenge or something like that, one of the things they, they often do and are encouraged to do is to change mattresses. Why? Because there's a sense that that, that mattress has, has been defiled. Like we, we, we understand this uh, intuitively, don't we? Well, let me see how, how the Bible uh, lays this out. I'm stealing this from, from other materials, so this isn't original with me. And the person I'm stealing it from is stealing it from, from others. 
But let me give you three ways that, just for our purpose, we can look at others, three ways this shows up in the Bible, and I think we see it in our own lives. First of all, we see in the Bible that places itself can be defiled. For example, Leviticus 18, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. The land became unclean. Right? The, the acts of the Canaanites in the land of promise have made the land unclean. And this is why Joshua is so bloody. You, you have to cleanse the lands in order to, 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 to inherit it. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's just become unclean. And then there's a warning throughout the, the Pentateuch that do not engage in those acts lest you make the land unclean again. We saw the same thing with David this morning, right? That, that Bathsheba went through a period of uncleanness. And then what does David do once she's purified again? He comes and defiles her. So we see that in Leviticus. We see the same thing in Numbers 35. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. I suspect for many of us, there are places, homes, locations, items, something that we try to avoid. We, 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 just, we just try to go around that. Maybe it's that home where, where you were abused as a child. Maybe it's that location where you were violated. Maybe it's the hallway where you made that fateful decision. Maybe it's there where you compromise your self-worth and you're still haunted by it. Think about it. If, if you were to go back to your hometown, right? It's one of the things that my wife and I did when we uh, were interviewing here at East Frankfurt is, is we went back to hometown and, and uh, uh, we, 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 we want to go see, you know, not just family, but, uh, and oftentimes we tell the kids, hey, now that we live in Frankfurt, look, this is where we went on dates and, and this is where we did this, right? Those are, those are good moments. And we, we share those moments with others, but chances are there are places that you don't bring up you don't bring up at all because you associate them with defilement and uncleanness. What about what the writer of Hebrews says about marriage, suggesting that marriage itself can be defiled? Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and, and adulterous. We get this too, right? Uh, whenever a marriage fails, what it isn't is a ripping up of a contract. It's a tearing apart of two souls. We understand this, right? There, 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 is, there is a defilement that happens. There is a shame that comes with it. There, there, is, there is a stain on the soul. So again, when there is adultery in a relationship, you can throw out the mattress, you can relocate to a different home. A lot of things couples do. And that is why adultery and other acts of sexual sin have a defiling effect on us. And this is why claims that intimacy is no big deal, but just two people enjoying the moment is a lie. Again, tell that to victims of sexual assault. Tell that to the unwanted child who's been lost in the system. Right. It's just my body is what we oftentimes say. That, again, is Gnosticism. We talked about that a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. That is the separation of the body and the soul. So I am, a, I am a, uh, a soul to being trapped within the body. So what I do with my body doesn't really matter. That means I can change genders and it doesn't matter. I, I, I can engage in activity, it doesn't matter because that's not who I really am, right? In fact, my body keeps me from being who it is I really am. You should embrace who I think I really am. That, that's Gnosticism. It's, it's as old as Western society. But the truth is what you do with your body does affect your soul. 
Young women who give themselves away in search of love will always come to the point where they feel used and dirty. There's a reason for that. Thirdly, people can become defiled, according to the Bible. When a 21st century American reads the Mosaic Law, we we get lost in all the language of clean and unclean, don't we? We we roll our eyes thinking that doesn't apply to us. What do I care what what the garment I wear is made out of, for example? That, That stuff just... We, we, we don't care. Chances are you buy something uh, because it's cheap, cute, or your husband offered to pay for it. I don't know. Um, we don't often look at the tag to see what it's made out of, right? I mean, we, we don't do any of that. Yet the ancients understood something we oftentimes ignore, and that is how sin defiles. The stain on the soul is a very real deal. And we already looked at Genesis 34, 5, how, how Jacob defiled someone. Right, And that person now became defiled. Or consider 1 Chronicles 5, 1, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. He was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, notice that. See the language. It's not the couch itself, but what happened on, on that couch. And Numbers five twenty seven connects adultery to, to defilements. Think how one's reputation becomes what happens to whenever it's uncovered that they are an abuser. A womanizer, a hypocrite, or sexual deviants. They become defiled in the eyes of the public. And they're oftentimes associated with that scandal. Or if you were violated and you see the assailment out in public, you not only feel shame, you, 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 you feel a defilement upon that wicked person. Of course, we, we, we've emphasized sexual sin, but oftentimes because the Bible does that, it's not limited to that. Various kinds of abuse, substance use, violence, illegal activity, hidden secrets, and all of these bring with it defilements. And not just to the person who's committing the act, but the, who is the victim of that act. Think about whenever we are sinned against, how we oftentimes react, right? It's, it's, we act the same the way Adam and Eve did. You remember in Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed, Right, And the Bible is going to emphasize that in the garden, part of the sin, there wasn't shame. Once sin enters into the story, there is shame. And, and so what they do is, is, is the, first of all, they hide from God, right? They, 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 their eyes are opened to see good and evil. And what do they do? They look in the mirror and they realize that, that now they, they are among the evil. And so here comes a holy and righteous God, and they hide. And God's question, like, well, who, who told you you were, you were naked, right? Where did this come from? Why, why are you hiding from me? Something's changed. And not only do they hide from God, but they hide from each other. There's shame vertically against God, but there's shame horizontally with, with each other. Here, here are two people who are together, you know, and they're in love, and they're one flesh, and all of a sudden, shame has entered into the story. The has entered into the story, and they're two again. The two became one only when sinners to become two again. And there's shame of themselves. They're sh- ashamed of, of the other. And so they... They go about hiding the shame in, in a number of ways. They blame the other, that woman you gave me, the serpent that you let in the garden. They hid from each other. They became very afraid, right? What, what were they afraid of? If, and they're afraid that if God and others knew who they really were, they wouldn't be loved by them, but rather they would be shamed by them. In other words, they, they wore fig leaves, right? And they wanted to cover it up. We, we, we do the same thing today. We, we respond with fear. What if they find out? And one of our greatest fears is to be exposed. 
as being different than how we want to be portrayed. This is one of the things that social media has has really amplified. How we portray ourselves online is very different than who we are in, in person. You've heard me say this before. You and I have never posted an unedited photo uh, online. Our family might have, and we get upset with them, right? But we don't. If we have the choice, right, we're going to look like the perfect family, the perfect couple, living the perfect life, and it looks like we're on vacation all the time. We may even spread out those photos so it looks like that we're just living a perfect life. But, but we all know that it's, it's all a facade. We're, but we live in this constant fear that someone may find out who it is that we, we really are. Or we may hide and try to keep our distance. One of the things I've noticed as we've become more connected technologically, we are less connected personally. We are afraid of genuine intimacy. We will put relational and emotional walls up that keep us from getting close to someone. Why? We live in fear. They may find something else. They may know something about me. They may discover that one thing I've been suppressing all this time. So what does this look like practically? We will get to the Bible here in a minute. This is all introduction. You're not getting out early. It's okay. It gives the kids more time to practice. So you're welcome. You're welcome. What does it look like practically? First of all, it looks like resilience, right? This is the person who tries um, to, um, who tries harder than uh, everyone, right? They try to accomplish more. They, they're always trying to prove themselves, right? And, and, uh, and, and they're always you know, working hard and bragging about what they've accomplished. They're, they're just resilient, right? But if you ask them about their upbringing, their childhood, their first marriage, or uh, what, you, what you end up getting from them is misdirection towards their accomplishments or a refusal to be vulnerable. Chances are right now you are thinking of someone, and it may be you, if you're being honest. You love to talk about how awesome your kids are and all the great things that they're doing. You, you love to talk about how, how the boss is just giving you yet another promotion. You love to talk about all these things you're accomplishing in your hobbies and how many followers you may have online and all these sort of things. But, but when, when a more intimate subject comes up, there's a real hesitancy there, real hesitancy there. And what you find is just another way to hide. It's just another act of fear. It's a fig leaf, if you will. Others respond with rebellion, bouncing from one boy to another, the inability to break an addiction, being easily triggered to anger and malice, the sexual deviant, the bitter soul, the self-punisher. I deserve these bad circumstances. I have no other choice, that sort of thinking. And thinking is that dirty things have been done to me, therefore I must be a dirty person. This is what dirty people do. This is the rebel who have just succumbed to, to a lifestyle that it isn't that it makes them happy, but they've bought into an identity. It's uncleanness. This is who I am. This is what unclean people do. So this is how I will act. There's a third person here. You tell me if you've ever met this person, and that is the person who turns to religion. It's the hope that if, if, I, if I just go to church this week, I'll feel better about myself. If I go through the, through the rituals and, and, and everything else, whether it be baptism or Lord's Supper, and, and, I, and if, if I read my Bible regularly and I pray really hard and I just do the religious things, then, 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 then the stain upon my soul will be removed. But it doesn't work, does it? It's a fig leaf. All these are fig leaves. We're trying to cover up shame. We're trying to cover up uncleanness. So it's just fig leaves. So the Bible is very honest about 
about this issue. And we see it here with the two goats. Now, we don't have time to get into all the details. I, I, I'm wondering if, if you're hearing me read the ESV and I'm using the word Azazel because they're, they're transliterating that. You're wondering, what in the world is that? I wish we had time for that. And I wish I had a very clear answer to give you about that. Um, but uh, I go back and forth in various options. But, but let's just highlight and see, see some of what is going on here. Verses 3, to ten, three, three through 10 describes the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is, is the Easter, if you will, of Jewish religion. It, it, is, it is the climax of all that they do because it is here God brings grace and, and cleansing to, to, to Israel. And so it is a very important day, particularly for the high priest, who he alone enters into the Holy of Holies in the temple, or in this case, the, the tabernacle. And so uh, in order to do that, he goes through a series of washings series of cleansings. He will isolate himself for about a week. And he, what he eats is, is guarded. He will fast for several days. And, and every time he goes into the temple and he comes back out, he must change, right? And he can't wear wool or anything like that, lest something unclean, something dirty get on him. He must go in pure and dignified. He has to, has to offer a sacrifice for himself, a sacrifice for the other priests, as a sacrifice for, for Israel, right? He, it, it, is, it is a bloody, bloody, bloody day. All along, the people of Israel and their various tribes and they're organized in a certain way all gather around they cheer him on because he is going to go make atonement for them this is a very important day and and, and the key to understanding the day of atonement are these two goats the propitiatory goat this will be on your test and the expiatory goat the propitiatory goat is laid out in verses 15 to 19 this goat will be sacrificed and his blood will be the means by which the people receive forgiveness, right? He is a substitutionary offering. Uh, that, that in the place of the people is this propitiatory goat, and his destiny is to die in the place of sinners, right? And this is why the priest comes and he offers a sacrifice, and he comes and offers another. And finally, there is, there's the final propitiatory goat he offers on behalf of the people. And they understand that what the priest is doing in the presence of God is vital to their souls. It's vital to their forgiveness. For sin demands judgment, and the judgment of God is being placed as a substitute upon that propitiatory goat. The word propitiation means appeasement. The wrath of God is appeased upon the shed blood of that goat. In verses 20 to the 22, we meet the expiatory goats. You see, so with, with all this, this sacrifice and, and, and all of this going on, the, you can imagine that the priest's hands becomes very bloody. And, and what he does is he goes to the second goat. And this innocent goat chosen for this purpose, he, he takes his bloody hands and, and, and he lays it on that goat. It's as if the sins of the people have been transferred onto him. And then those who are made ready, the text says, are, are, are then sent into the wilderness with the goat, and the goat leaves the camp. The implication, I believe, is that that goat will die in the wilderness. I wish we had time to explore that. That's probably where the Azazel stuff comes from. He goes into the wilderness. And, but, but notice here that the sins that, that, that the first goat died for, the propitiatory goat, are now laid upon the expiatory goat, and those sins leave the camp. They go into outer darkness and the wilderness. They no longer are among the people of God. That's cleansing. The first offers forgiveness. The second offers freedom. And this is the hope of, of, of this. And they do it every year. Every year they gather around the temple or the tabernacle and they offer these sacrifices. And everyone would have understood the imagery. 
One dies for forgiveness, the other dies for freedom. Well, that's the stain, right? Let's, let's look at the, the cleansing. Turn with me, if you will, to Zechariah 3. Again, we, we can't look at it in the details that I would like to. Zechariah, not to be confused with Zephaniah, that'll help, um, is, is near the uh, back of, of your Old Testaments. Zechariah 3, we've looked at several times. I think our first, one of our first Easter's, we, we looked at this passage. I absolutely love this passage. One of my favorite in, in all the Bible. Again, we, we don't have the time to, to look at it, so I'll have to do some, some summary. We referenced it a few, a few weeks ago, maybe even last week. Notice there, verse 1, that he, that is God, showed me, so this is a vision, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And what we have here is that Joshua is covered from head to toe in excrements. Joshua is the high priest who represents the people of Israel. This is a vision. And so, so what is it that when Israel presents itself before God, right, and in the act of the Day of Atonement, so the high priest representing the people on the Day of Atonement, and instead of being uh, 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 pure and clean and in white robes and everything else, he is covered in filth. And there is Satan there, right? Accusing. This is your people? This is the best you can do? Oh, they're as dirty as, as, as the pagans are. Some god you are. Some people they are. He just accuses and accuses and accuses. But you'll notice here that he's standing before the, the angel of the Lord. In verse 4, the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. To him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, I think Zechariah's getting so excited when he sees this scene. He just bursts in. He's, he's a Baptist. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So you see the imagery, right? What you have here is the, the, the high priest standing before God on the Day of Atonement. And in this vision, it is, he's in the throne room, if, if you will. And he is covered from head to toe. He is unclean. He is filthy. And he represents a filthy people. But, 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 but what does Jesus do? Satan is there to accuse. Jesus is there to cleanse. And what does he do? He, he strips him of all of that filth. He takes all of it off. Remove all of that. And in its place, here are pure vestments. And Zechariah blurts in here, right, that Baptist, and he says, oh, 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 don't, don't forget, according to our bylaws, he needs a new turban, right? Now, why is that turban so important? It's strange to us because you don't wear hats inside the sanctuary, right? But, but, but in, in ancient times, a turban has a sign on the front that says, holy unto the Lord. So, so here you have Joshua, the high priest, who goes from filthy and accused to holy before God simply because the angel of the Lord made him that. Not because of anything he's done or because he's worthy of it or because uh, soap and water are sufficient, but because Christ, and I believe that is who the angel of the Lord is, has made it so. This, I believe, is a picture of the gospel, in fact, I think I can prove it to you. In verses 8 to 10, we get this messianic prophecy. It's easy to get lost in it, and we, we don't have the time to go into all the details. Hear now, o Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. You know, you're, we read that this morning, didn't we, in Isaiah 11? The, 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 the rod and, and the stem of Jesse the branch. It's clearly a messianic prophecy. Verse 9, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. Read Revelation. Seven eyes are all over the place. 
I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Notice there that it isn't just Joshua who is impure, but the land itself is impure. Now that itself is symbolic, right? The people are impure. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, we talk a lot about Garden of Eden. That language sound familiar to you? The Garden of Eden imagery is eschatological. It's looking forward to the Messianic age. To where we don't go east from Eden, we go back west into Eden, a recreated Eden. Now, how does that come by? It comes by the means of, of the gospel. Now, if you keep reading Zechariah, which we won't do, um, he states in Zechariah 3, I'm doing NIV just for sake of clarity. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? To cleanse them from sin and iniquity. And that's what you have illustrated here in Zechariah 3. How God in Christ will cleanse the people. And he will do it by the means of Messiah. Who himself will become the filthy one. Who himself will take on the, the uncleanness and the shame and everything else. One of my favorite hymns is, first time I remember singing it, I thought, that is a weird hymn, but I absolutely love it. I trust you, you know it well. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You see the irony of that poetry? If you jump into the pool, the fountain of blood, you should be dirtified, right? But you actually, you get cleansed. That's the beauty of it. That's why in Revelation, you see robes, white robes dipped in blood. They're not filthy anymore because it's the lamb's blood. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there... May I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. It's almost as if the writer of this hymn is reading Zechariah 3, isn't it? Or maybe he's reading Jeremiah 33. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, by which they have transgressed me. Notice there, pardoning speaks of forgiveness. Cleansing speaks of freedom. Both are there, propitiation and expiation. The problem is because of theological liberalism, conservatives don't want to sound liberal, so we don't talk about expiation. We don't talk about cleansing. That's what the libs did because everything became, hey, Jesus loves you, he's cleansed you, move on with your life. And they ignore the, the, the penal part of it, the judgment part of it. But both are presented in the Bible. Isn't that why we sing, have you, heard, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Again, the irony. How can you be spotless if you are washed in blood? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? In fact, that is why the gospel matters. If I were to ask you, what must you do to be redeemed from your sin? You would answer, come to Jesus for forgiveness. And you would be absolutely right. But incomplete. If I asked you, what must you do to be cleansed from your sin? Chances are many of us would just become bobblehead dolls. It's not language we use enough. We sing it. We read it in our Bibles. We haven't thought about it much. There is a cleansing of the soul that comes by Christ. The God who forgives is the same God who cleanses. 
Now, do you think our nation needs to hear this? Yes. Do you think the church needs to proclaim not just forgiveness offered to sinners, but the cleansing offered to the stained? Yes. You think there are plenty of people in our pews who right now, they say, yes, I believe Jesus has forgiven me, but why do I still feel this way? Why am I still struggling with this addiction? Why am I struggling with identity matters? It's because we've proclaimed forgiveness, and rightly so. And we've presented a propitiatory goat, and rightly so. But we've left behind the expiatory goats. We've left behind a Savior who says, come to me and you will be cleansed forevermore. So no longer are you identified by what has been done to you or what you have done, period. Your identity is hidden in Christ and all those sins, all those shame, all of that is laid upon Christ. Isn't this why we sing, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? You know the answer. It's nothing but the blood of the Lamb. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Notice there, the hymn writer gets it. There, is, there must be forgiveness and freedom dealing with sin and the stain. Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know the course. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.